0: It's time for some straight talk. It's tax refund time. Hallelujah. What are you going to do with all that glorious extra cash? A new drone? No, it'll end up in the tree. Here's a better plan. Try Straight Talk Wireless and get 25 gigs of high-speed data for just 45 bucks a month. All on America's best 4G LTE networks. Plus, save up to $200 on a Samsung Galaxy S9 with in-store activation. Straight Talk Wireless, only at Walmart. See terms at straighttalk.com.
1: State of Digital Publishing is creating a new publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with Gina Chen, Assistant Professor at the School of Journalism at the University of Texas at Austin on the changes and innovations in journalist education. Let's begin. Hi, Gina. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Uh, thanks for joining us with, with your background. Um, I guess I wanted to bring you on today on this episode just to speak more about seeing where the path of current students are going to in getting into their digital media career and, and more about your background as well because you've had a quite extensive experience. So just to start off with, if you can provide a bit of a background about your experience and, and why you've led into academics in academic life.
0: Sure. I started out as a newspaper reporter in upstate New York here in the United States, and I spent 20 years as both a reporter and an editor. Um, Most of that was at a newspaper in Syracuse, New York, and I worked as a copy editor. I worked as an assignment editor. I was a bureau chief. I covered pretty much every beat except sports and business, so I covered police. I covered Local and state and county government, I covered um courts. I had a brief period where I covered k- parenting as a beat and wrote about um, issues for mostly mothers and at the tail end of that, um the newspaper business here in the united states was was hitting some beginning to hit some problems, and our newspaper was laying people off and I was getting concerned that I might not have a job. So I thought, well, what else would I like to do? And and that's when I went back to school. I got my PhD in mass communications from Syracuse University. And then I, when I finished that, I started teaching at the University of Southern Mississippi. I was there for two years in their School of Mass Communication and Journalism. And then four years ago, I came to... Um, the University of Texas at Austin, where I'm currently an assistant professor of journalism, and I'm also assistant director of the Center for Media Engagement, which is a research colloquium that studies journalism and how we can improve it.
1: So how does does it day-to-day look like then, being an assistant professor and also directing Engaging News?
0: Right. And I'm assistant director of Engaging News, just to clarify, but yeah. you know, most of my day—I mean, I teach. Most of my days spent either doing teaching or research. So, what I do for the center is—is is more. Um, we do both practical and more academic research. So, a typical day, you know, I'm writing. I'm creating surveys. I'm talking to clients that we work with with the Center for Media Engagement. Um, to set up projects to study specific things about journalism that they would like some information about. Like, for example, how to make our comment stream less uncivil, or how do we get our audience to trust us more? So we we contract with mostly news organizations or private foundations to come up with projects. So much of my day is spent doing that, and then much of my day is doing sort of traditional pre- Professor duties: teaching, grading, lecturing, meeting with students, and then on top of that, I'm also doing my own research where I study online interaction, particularly as it it relates to incivility. Um, I recently published a book about online incivility called "Online Incivility and Public Debate: Nasty Talk," and I'm currently working on my third book, which is looking at why Americans engage personally with their politicians. So. Much of my time is spent writing, to be honest.
1: Understood. And so, um, so you answered my other question that I had: this split between um, teaching versus writing. So, uh, looking at engaging news, uh, how how did that come about? What was the how has that model worked now that you know media organisations now come to universities to get that
0: information? Well, you know, it started as a project called the Engaging News Project. That was started by the director of the center, Talia Stroud. She is an associate professor here at the University of Texas at Austin. And she started it Started it really just working. News organizations um, had some projects. They wanted some help with them. And she kind of started it gradually about five years ago. And then in October, we formally became a center at the university. So what that means is we have sort of a more formal title. We have um, a small endowment. But really how it started was news organizations wanted answers to discrete questions and they didn't necessarily have the research background to answer those questions or the time. So they would contract with us and say, hey, we want to know this. We want to solve this problem. And then, you know, we would work together to come up with a plan, often an experiment to test out, you know, how they might change either their content or their way their website looks or how they engage with the public to increase audience engagement, to increase interest in their news sites, to increase satisfaction with their news sites. So it was a good fit for me. I started working with the center um, back when it was the Engaging News Project about two years ago, Mm -hmm. sort of informally, just because I was very interested in the topic. And then I became the assistant director in January.
1: Congratulations on the promotion. Um, With that as well, how much of that information that you you learn from those organizations feed into your teaching?
0: Well, you know, a lot of it does. I mean, sometimes we always, whenever we do a project with a news organization or a nonprofit, we produce what we call a white paper, which is basically a report that's written for a lay audience, so a non-academic audience that summarizes what we found. You know, we tested this. This is what we found. This is what we found works. And I have used those specifically in my the class i teach called online incivility i have used some of those reports to explain to students you know how many people read the comments and what type of people read the comments and what kind of interactions improve comment streams so those are really i've used directly in my teaching to inform you know what what we do in my online incivility class which is really geared towards helping students Combat incivility or deal with it once they get onto the job market.
1: Just to be clear, um, it's a supplementary material as part for, for, as part of the curriculum. Is that correct? They use the material.
0: Yeah, I mean, usually the way it would work is I I might have a lecture on it, so I might have them read the report. You know, the reports are relatively short and they're written for a lay audience. They would read the report and then we talk about it as part of the class discussion on my lecture that day.
1: And how do you, how have you seen that? difference in engagement from the students by having that supplementary material?
0: Well, I think it's important because it's really a very real world example. You know, we at the center, we directly study why people engage with the news, how they engage with the news, how they can, how news organizations can improve that. And -hmm. those things are, are really practical and super relevant to my students who are mostly you know, students in the journalism school who are either going into a career in journalism or into a career that's somehow related to journalism. So it gives them some real, real world examples of what they might do once they get you know, into those jobs they're hoping to get after graduation.
1: Do students have opportunities to get involved in those other projects or somehow be affiliated or associated with the center?
0: They do. I mean, we have both doctoral research associates, so those are doctoral students who are getting their PhDs who assist us with the research. We also have um, occasionally master's students doing that, and we have undergraduate research assistants. So, for example, I have a student who was in my online instability class last fall. Mm -hmm. I was very impressed with her, and now I've hired her for this fall to work with the center, so she'll be helping us with the research directly, you know, doing certain tasks that are relevant to her ability level, um, but really get a firsthand look at not only how to improve the news industry, but how to conduct research. So there's a real um, educational component to it as well.
1: That sounds very practical and very positive for this students' development. So that's really that's really good to hear. With the journalism center, sorry, with the center, uh, our journalism centers in general. In your to your knowledge how is this concept fairly new or when did this first start in the, in the US and and how do you think it started
0: well I mean I think that that certainly having research centers at universities is not new you know we have many of them at the University of Texas at Austin that study different things you know we have one studying health communication and we have one studying innovation but what I think is new is the fact that our center directly works with news organizations to solve really practical problems. So we're not just, you know, sometimes academics are accused of just being up in the Ivy, Ivy Tower, you know, doing research that doesn't affect anybody. And that's not the case with our center. We do research that we, we publish in academic journals as well, but has real direct, practical implications for news organizations, for the news media, and for a democratic society more broadly in the United States. So I think that is relatively new. There are some other research-type colloquiums at other universities that are similar to ours, but I don't think any do exactly what we do, which is really conduct high-level research for news organizations to solve discrete problems around engagement with the news.
1: And I guess um, just to put my opinion out, I mean, this this probably is better than going to a, maybe it's a better alternative than going to a martech solution provider to try to find the problem because it's not of it's not objective or it's not sorry it's not biased and you, like you said, it's providing more of a high level a view of trying to solve the problem as opposed to giving them um, a biased view.
0: Right. I mean, I think and part of it too is that you know we bring expertise not just as researchers but of experts on the journalism industry and how the news media works. I myself have experience, you know, as we already discussed, as a journalist. So I think that brings a really unique perspective to it, because we're not just, you know, the news organizations aren't just hiring somebody who knows nothing about this topic to create a survey. They're hiring people who know a lot about the topic to really help them solve the problems that they want to solve in their own business.
1: That makes sense. Let's come back to the center um, in terms of initiatives and everything else a bit later in the conversation, but let's take a, let's take a step back. So how was it like when you started studied for journalism? And how do you think you compares to today?
0: Well, it was very different. I graduated with my undergraduate degree in communications in 1989. Um, my first newspaper I worked at was a weekly newspaper where we actually didn't even have a typesetting machine like we had to roll wax on the back of these layout sheets to actually put the paper together so that's how long ago that was so you know i was a journalist in the pre internet age so obviously that has changed a lot i mean i was a journalist in the pre social media age so those are significant changes i also was a journalist in the days before you know newspapers used video Right. The only people who were using video at that time were TV stations, certainly not print organizations into video. So I think those are three significant changes in how we do journalism. So that has changed. I think the skill sets that journalists need today are much broader than they needed to be when I graduated in 1989. But I think some things have not changed at all. Um, You know, one of the I teach a class occasionally here at UT, which is our basic reporting class. We teach students, you know, how to write a good lead, how to write a clear sentence. All of that hasn't changed. Um, we teach students how to be accurate, how to check their facts. That hasn't changed. In fact, that's probably become more thorny because there's so many ways, more ways to make a mistake today than there was when I was starting out. So I think we have a situation where the skills that a journalist needs today are much more broad than the skills that I needed. You know, I basically needed how to write and how to ask questions and how to put it together in a cohesive story and how to maybe look at documents and gather information from that. And students today need to know all of that, but they also know how to need to know how to use social media correctly without repeating inaccuracies. Um, they have to know how to use video and edit it and record it. And, you know, we also do a fair amount of audio. Podcasts, we have a class in podcasting. So they need to know those kind of more technical skills. So I think those are the main differences and similarities over that period.
1: So especially with fact-checking, you said it's a lot more thorny. You said it's pretty much the same approach, but they have to be more careful. Uh, Hasn't there been any other techniques that have been factored in or any other? Obviously, the tools that you use would change, but do you think that there hasn't been any other techniques that would be factored into fact-checking these days?
0: Well, I think there are. I just think that there's more ways for average person and journalists to come across false information than perhaps in the past. You know, when I was starting out, I needed to make sure when I interviewed somebody that they were who they said they were. You know, I had to check the facts they gave me, you know, maybe check their date of birth, check their age, make sure the things they told me were correct. Whereas Mm -hmm. now journalists are faced with a situation where there may be things on Twitter That are being spread virally that are completely not true. So they need to also know how to check those things. They need to be aware of fact checking sites like Fact Checker and PolitiFact, Snopes. They also need to know how to verify um, by reading multiple accounts. You know, if you see somebody has a famous person has died on Twitter, you need to know how to verify that before you start spreading it. You also need to read multiple sources of news to make sure you know the full story before you start asking questions about it. And I also think journalists today often, you know, use content right off Twitter. So they need to be aware of whether an account is verified, whether an account is really from another journalist or not, whether an account is a, you know, a parody account or a fake account, whether it's a fake news site, you know, there's some fake news sites that are created just to be funny So they need to be aware of those, and they also need to be aware of news sites that maybe have a very partisan bent to them and are not really providing true information. So it's a lot more to keep track of. I mean, journalists always wanted to be accurate. Mm -hmm. I think the other part that makes it thorny is that we can release information so much more quickly than we could. You know, again, back to when I started as a journalist, I'd write my story. I'd give it to my editor. My editor would read it. Then another editor would read it. Then another editor would read it. You know, it might go through five people before it got into the newspaper. And so there was time to double check everything. There was multiple people reading my story. Today, many news organizations don't have multiple editors reading a story. They often don't have copy editors. And there's also, because we have the internet, people want to get their story out right away. So there's a temptation to get it out Right away, without checking things as much as they should. Whereas we didn't have that option before. To you know, no matter what I did, my story wasn't going to come out till the next day's paper anyway. Whereas now, a, you know, a journalist can write a story and post it on the website or share it on Twitter within five minutes. So I think that has really changed and made the the issue of truthfulness in the news much more important, but also more challenging.
1: Yeah. Um... Like you said, there's a lot of many factors that you have to factor, consider. You, you know, you mentioned before as well that you never, like before academics were seen as people were sitting in the ivory towers and just doing their own thing and just publishing content, but now, like you said, which is great that you're working with news organisations. The only thing that I just wanted to add on top of that and ask you was, given that you, you said that you were from the pre-social media era and as a journalist, do you think... Ha- are you able to get gap that this uh, difference between current aspiring journalists that want to come in that are, you know, digital savvy and that have grown up with technology? And how have you been able to bridge that gap in, in, in educating students these
0: days? Well, you know, I think for me, I started out in the pre-internet age, but I didn't end my career in journalism in the pre-internet age. You know, I left my job as a reporter in 2009 So obviously social media was around. I was a very heavy user of it at my newspaper when I left. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was one of the people who was, you know, sort of developing at our newspaper, you know, ways to use it. And that actually fueled my interest in studying it. Like once I became an academic and I needed to pick a research area, I became very interested in the online space because I used it as a journalist. So yes, I started out in the pre-internet days, the tail end of my career wasn't, um, and I sort of had to evolve along with the technology. You know, technology was changing. The internet was introduced. Social media was introduced. When I left my newspaper, I had a pretty popular blog that I was covering parenting at the time, and I had a, you know, a mommy blog, which were very popular at the time. So I was pretty attuned to those newer skills. And then I sort of learned how to do video and video editing so that I could be able to teach the next generation of journalists.
1: So you pretty much involved. That makes sense. Do you find that there's other ex-journalists who are academics now haven't involved and working in your university or generally in universities around the US?
0: Well, I think it's hard if you left the business, you know, left the news business pre-internet, because you're obviously not, you you didn't work there during that period. But with that said, I think many faculty members, you know, they'll do things like get more training in a newsroom, they'll spend a summer in a newsroom to get more updated on their skills. So, I mean, I'm sure there are some journalism professors across the whole world who aren't as updated on their skills as they should be, but I think many of them are and make a concerted effort to update their skills. And I I also think that we have to constantly do that because we're not, it's not like you can do it and then stop because it's still changing. You know, virtual reality is one of those things that some news organizations are using. Data journalism has become really popular lately. So it's not like you can ever, no matter when you left the news business, you're still going to have to update your skills because we're constantly going to have new technology it gives us new ways to tell stories.
1: And is that the main approach that you take in order to stay connected with upcoming um, students and journalists, aspiring journalists? Is that the way that you can... You can yeah, I mean, I,
0: well, I think it's important. I mean, I think that it's important to stay up with the technology that the news business is using, it's teaching it. And I think that to stay plugged in to how news organizations are evolving, because You know, we know technology isn't going to stop. We're not going to stop and say, okay, that's it. We're not going to invent anything else. So in 10 years, I would probably be talking about different things that are being taught in my journalism school than today. And I think that's great. I mean, we should keep innovating.
1: Gina, so still on this point, I guess I just wanted to get your opinion on this. Do you think age of the teacher matters? Um, I know that you still keep on top of things, but having a a more younger professor or lecturer who's teaching upcoming journalists, do you think that makes, is there any difference in how students respond or connect with that teacher?
0: Well, I I mean, I don't know that age is the difference in how people respond. I guess what I would say is, I think it's good to have a good mix. There is certainly value to having people on your faculty who have experienced things that journalists today haven't, right? They have a greater depth of experience. I also think there's tremendous value for having people who are more recently out of the business. You know, we do that on our faculty where we have what are called lecturer positions. So those are professors who usually didn't, don't have a PhD, but have a lot of professional experience and may have more recently in the business. And so that allows us to constantly be hiring people who have more updated skills. And I do think that, you know, you want a good mix, you want some young, young faculty members, you want more senior people. And I think students respond to faculty not based on their age, but on how well they are able to communicate the information they're trying to teach. So I think there's, you know, when I think about professors, I know, there's professors who are older than me who I think students learn a lot from and there's professors who are younger than me who I think students learn a lot from but it's good to have a good mix because the industry keeps evolving and so as we hire new people who are more recently out of the business you know obviously they're going to provide information that more seasoned people aren't going to have.
1: So what are some of the things you said that there's journalists that don't know how to do this anymore that that maybe more of the, of the experienced PhDs and professors can teach students today? Is it an old, is well, that old school, I, mean, I guess, fact-checking journalism style or, or what? what are you right.
0: Thinking? Well, like I said, I mean, I I think, you know, I don't I don't want to give the impression that I think that if someone's worked at a journalism school for a long time, that that's a bad thing because I and don't think course, that at all. A, okay. I, yeah, I, I mean, I think that, Many of the things that we need to teach students are not changing. You know, teaching students how to interview someone really well doesn't change. That's the same as it was 20 years ago. It'll probably be the same in 20 years. The tools of the interview may change, but the ability to ask the kind of questions that elicit the kind of answers that tell a vivid story are so important, and those don't change. And I think that writing well doesn't change. You know, we have more senior faculty members who have a lot of experience writing. They are invaluable to students to teach that craft to them. And I think the ability to dive through documents also doesn't change. We might do it today using data journalism and using a computer to do the digging, but it's not really any different than the way we used to do it, where we actually had to, you know, obtain physical documents and look through them in a stack. So I think there's still a need for all of that. There's a need for professors who have expertise in newer areas. You know, for example, I teach the social media journalism class. We certainly need somebody who has expertise in that. We just hired someone new who teaches a data journalism class. We need expertise in that. Um, But there's plenty of other aspects of journalism that are unchanging and really don't change and the students need a strong foundation in those aspects as well.
1: Thank you for reinforcing that. I just wanted to just be really clear on that point. So what's that transition that, you know, your, your motivation behind becoming, becoming an academic is different from other people, but what are some of the other stories that you heard or some of the other reasons you've heard that people have transitioned into academic life or profession?
0: You know, I mean, I think that, I made the transition when I did for economic reasons because I was afraid I wouldn't have a job, but even before that, I had always wanted to come back and become a professor later in my career. So I think part of it is that i want I had done one thing for twenty years I was a journalist for twenty years, and I loved being a journalist, but I was ready for a new challenge. The other part was I liked I wanted to be able to do research more extensive research that you know you do research for a news story but when you're a professor your job you you do much more extensive research you can conduct experiments you can do in-depth interviews um, where you might interview you know a hundred people versus a, a dozen people so I really wanted to be able to do those kind of things and I think of my friends who've made the transition it's usually a mix it's a mix between hey I love what I'm doing but I'm not if I want to do it the rest of my life and I want to do something related to it. I think for some, it's a little bit of a fear of being able to keep a job in journalism because you know that's harder and harder to do these days. And it's harder for the people who've been there a long time. But I don't want to make it sound like either I or most people go into being a professor because they were running away from a journalism job because I didn't feel that way at all the timing of it had to do with the finances but really i love what i'm doing now i love what i'm doing now as much as i loved what i was doing as a journalist i just was ready for sort of a new chapter to do it in a different way to have the ability to teach is very different than the ability to you know go out and tell the stories and there's something really gratifying about teaching someone who doesn't know how to do it how to do it and i think that drives a lot of people who make the jump from journalism to being a professor of journalism.
1: That that, that makes it up. Uh, yeah, I've, I've done a bit of teaching myself, and I know that feeling. Because um, you even learn, by teaching someone else, you actually even learn better, the craft better as well in some ways. Or because you have to... Oh,
0: you do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, when you, when you have to teach it to someone, you have to know it really, really well. Because you can't teach it to someone else unless you really know it at a high level. So I learn a lot from my students, and I learn a lot. Teaching because it helped me sort of refine in my head, well, how did I do this? How did I get these people to talk to me? How did I find out about this story and then to be able to articulate it to my students?
1: No absolutely. I agree with you. So Gina, with so when students enroll in the University of Texas or you know yeah, let's look at refer to the University of Texas into, into the journalism school and the courses degrees. What are what are the rate feedback that you're getting in terms of why they are enrolling? And how what have you seen in the past? Have you seen any changes in the reasons why over the past five or ten years? Or since you started five years ago?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I can tell you I haven't been there five or ten years, so I can't really speak historically, but oh, what I'm looking like yeah. we are finding yep. is that many of our students who enroll in the journalism school want a traditional route into journalism. You know, they want to work as a TV uh, newscaster, an anchor. They want to work at a newspaper. They want to be an investigative reporter. But some of them, and I think this is more of a transition, don't want a traditional journalism career, but they want the tools and the skills that we teach to enable them to go into different careers. So I think that's probably a change over the past five or 10 years. Um, I mean, certainly in the past there were students who got a journalism degree and didn't become journalists. But I think now students are going into the degree saying, this degree is going to teach me how to write. This degree is going to teach me how to tell stories. This degree is going to teach me how to, you know, shoot, edit, and produce a video story. This is going to teach me how to shoot and or record an audio story. And these are skills that, many industries want, not just journalism. Um, It's going to teach me how to run a social media account, how to manage social media in a professional way. So I think that's somewhat a transition that some of our students come in and say, I want to take these classes because I want to learn these skills. And then I want to take these skills and go work for a private company, or I want to go work in government, or I want to go on To become a lawyer, we have students who do that, you know, who want to learn to write well because you have to write so much as a lawyer. So I think that really a degree in journalism has become a lot more diverse than it was in the past. It's not just this sort of trade school to train you to work at a news organization. It's becoming more broad that you're learning a whole bunch of skills that you might use in very, very different ways than your other classmates.
1: How's that? Impacted the way that you teach, given that it's becoming more diverse, with other positive, negative, has that impacted you in any way?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it has. I mean, we, before I got to UT, they redesigned the curriculum so that you could take sort of these pathways, but you didn't have to say, okay, I'm going to, you used to have to sort of target, I'm going to be newspaper, I'm going to be broadcast. Whereas now you have a lot more freedom between to take classes so that you don't have to be sort of siloed into one type of news organization. So that's one change that predates me. I think the other change is is that we are adding classes that have a more broad appeal. I mean, my social media journalism class is a great example. Um, We have 150 students every semester, and those, some of them are journalism students, and some of them are from outside majors. And we've sort of tailored the class so that it's relevant to students' who don't necessarily want to go into journalism. So we've done that with many of our classes, made them so that you will learn this type of skills, but you can use those skills with whatever career you go into. Um, and I think we constantly are updating our curriculum because of that. You know, we've added a class where students learn to make an app, like a phone app, where they team up with a computer science student and they create a phone app. So the journalism student and the computer science student work together. The journalism student kind of, you know, helps with the idea of what might be useful in the realm of journalism or more broadly in communication. And the computer science student has the coding skills to do it, but they end up with a product that they could market anywhere. It doesn't have to be in journalism. We don't restrict their ideas to be, this is something a news organization would use. So I think those are some examples of we have, updated our curriculum so that it's giving students options of skills that they want that they can use however they want to use them, whatever career they end up in.
1: So, Jin, what's the process now in determining how, when you're revising this, or reviewing the syllabus, how to add, when to add new subjects? and the, And the second part of the question is, How can students now determine their pathway without having that prior experience and knowledge at the university?
0: Well, I mean, I think there's two questions. One is, I mean, our curriculum, we have certain required classes. So that ensures that the students will get the basic things that they need if they're going into a journalism career or a non-journalism career. So they're required to take a reporting class. They're required to take a photography class they're required to take some more advanced levels of those classes. So there's not a danger that they're going to get out of school and only know one thing. In fact, they're going to be able to tailor what they learn. You know, certain classes, you have to take your sophomore year, certain classes you have to take your junior year. So there's still requirements. It's just there's more flexibility in them. Now, as far as updating, I mean, I think there's two aspects to that. We are we are all, every year we talk about as a faculty, what what skills are our students going to need to know in the future that we're not teaching them now, and we update it. And, you know, and that's sort of how the apps class came about. That is also how we've added some data journalism classes and data visualization classes. That's how those came about from those by, you know, as frequently as they want. So a good example of this is, I teach a social media journalism class. I recently took it over from another professor. We have been, we add different platforms as those become more important for news and information. Mm -hmm. So when we started the class, we didn't have, Snapchat hadn't been invented, for example. But then when Snapchat was invented, we added a Snapchat component to the class to teach the students how to tell stories on Snapchat, even stories, news stories. Because while, you know, someone my age probably isn't on Snapchat that often, young people are, and they actually get some of their news from Snapchat. So that's a way we can sort of update really quickly. You know, I, with my social media journalism class, I will probably change the syllabi every semester as new things are invented or change.
1: Is that in your control or do you have to validate that through
0: um no i mean we can change the syllabi we can change our syllabi pretty much easily as long as we're teaching the core part you know so that's pretty easy to do to update it you know for example the professor is teaching it this summer he's going to add an instagram stories component to it Mm -hmm. um because that wasn't available when we first wrote the syllabus and then i'll probably use that in the fall um but as new platforms emerge that we can use for news, we'll use it. I mean, another example is we used to use Storify in the class, which is an application that collects tweets and Facebook posts together. And then Storify kind of went away and stopped being free. So we don't use that anymore. Now we use Twitter moments. So, yeah, I mean, for a class that involves technology, we can be very fluid and update it. You know, and the syllabus itself doesn't have to go through approval process you know the way changing the whole curriculum
1: works. is there a particular um, when do you determine when you have to change the curriculum
0: well like I said we we usually talk about it kind of an ongoing discussion at our faculty meeting where we say people will propose a class and say hey I really want to teach a class in this and we can easily add a class to the course schedule without changing the whole curriculum so a good example of that is last year or last fall, I wanted to add a class about online incivility because that was becoming such a particular issue. And basically, I talked to the chair of my department said, I want to add this class. And he said, yes, and we put it on the schedule. Now, we didn't change the whole curriculum in that students aren't required to take it. It's an elective. But it's pretty easy to add an elective and then an elective if we want to turn it into a required course, you know, then it, there's a procedure where we update the curriculum every two years. But between those updates, we can easily add new classes that we feel like are really timely or relevant to what's going on.
1: How do you determine the demand though, if whether or not students would actually take on that class?
0: Well, you know, that's a little bit of a guessing game. We don't always know, but I can tell you the online incivility class My first semester teaching it, I got 40 students, which is a lot for our classes. I mean, we usually, that's a pretty big class in our school. So if we didn't get enough students, they would just cancel the class. So it's really not a risk. You know, if I didn't get enough students that cancel the class, I'd teach something else. Our social media class, when we started that, you know, we had no idea how popular it would be. And now we get 150 students every semester and we easily could have more you know if we opened it to more students like there's usually a waiting list so i think you know part of being a professor is being on top of what students are interested in and also what skills they need and so if you pitch a class that fits both those students will enroll in it you know they'll be interested in a class you know the app class, for example, when they introduce the class where they're design the class where they're designing apps, is mm-hmm. very popular um, and because it's something students want to know how to do today.
1: And Gina, just back to the point that I was mentioning before how how can you guide students to if like you said because the parts aren't clear, as clear as before, it's not just a trade uh, learning the trade, how do you help students guide what path they want to take once they graduate?
0: Well, I mean, I think there's two, two answers to that. One is, you know, making sure they, they complete all the credits and prerequisites that they have to to graduate. Mm-hmm. And we have advisors who work directly with the students to do that. You know, there's a certain pathway, even though we don't have the same divisions between, say, newspaper and TV that we used to have, we still have required classes that every student needs to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other, so that's a more formal process where they work with their advisor who says, okay, you won't be able to graduate if you don't get enough credits in this particular area. But then there's an informal process where you meet the student in class and you talk to them and say, what do you want to do? You know, you, you teach a reporting class and you I, you get to know your students and say, you know, do you love doing this? What do you, What's your future goal? And then you can say, you know, you really should consider taking this class. You certainly can't force them to take it. But usually, you know, you have that relationship with the student. So they are encouraged by the support you're showing them. So then you can kind of sort of unofficially say, hey, make sure you take these classes because I think you'll get a lot out of them. Um, and they really will fit your interest. So, you know, I think we do both. We do the formal system where, it's okay, these are the credits you have to take. But then the informal system where you're just, you know, I have students come to my office all the time who will like, here's what I want to do with my life. Should I take this class or this class? And I'm able to sort of informally say, well, if you love writing, take this class. If you love video more, take this class. And I think, you know, many of our professors have those informal relationships with students where they they kind of guide them.
1: What about for larger universities where that professor or lecturer has multiple class tutorials and classes, and they they can't really develop that one to one as as informal as like like you said, as closely as you have. Do you think the couple of students fall through the gaps, and you know that might be helps them become more indecisive in, in terms of what they want to do?
0: Well, I'm I you know I'm sure there's students who fall through the gap, but the University of Texas at, at Austin is certainly not a small university. I mean, we have 50,000 students. Our department is very focused on our students. And I think that's a strength of our department. So I don't know. I'm sure there's universities where there isn't that relationship. But one thing about us, we're an accredited journalism program. And as part of that, our core classes, our core skill classes are required to be small. So when a student takes the basic reporting class, they're not going to have more than 20 students in that class because that's a requirement of our accreditation as an accredited journalism school. Now, they certainly in upper division classes, like my social media journalism class with 150 students, you know, I don't know every single student in that class, but I still have students from that class coming to my office hours and talking to me. So, I guess, in answer to your question, I don't think the problem is whether you're at a big university or a small university, because we're, we're a big university. Um, It's just, you want to find a school where that's valued, you know, that those individual conversations with students are valued. And I think that is the case, you know, in my, in the school of journalism where I work it's definitely valued. That, that is an expectation of my job that I'm not just going to slough that off to a TA, that, you know, I'm available to students and I talk to students. And because we have the, the introductory skill classes are relatively small, that helps because it enables us to get to know them better. And so then, you know, you kind of check in with them. You'll see them in the hall a couple of years after your class and be like, hey, how are things going? And you have a relationship with them. Does every professor do that? Probably not, but I think at any university, the best professors do that.
1: Yeah, like I think in in any student's life, they always have that impressionable lecturer or teacher because of the, you know, their either their knowledge or the fact that they've been able to develop a relationship. So I, I agree with you. It's, it's definitely a crucial value to have in a university. With with that, I guess is there any other tools that you use to develop, to gather feedback? Cause for example, when I went, when I went to university, they always used to provide us survey links to, to fill out to provide the faculty regular feedback. Do you use any other tools to, to gather feedback on the, on the curriculum? Yeah.
0: I mean, we do, I mean, the university sends evaluation to the students either in person or online at the end of each semester. So the students, both rate the professor on a quantitative scale like a you know a 1 to 5 type scale and then there's also a place where they can put comments and those are used as part of our tenure and promotion evaluations so when we get go up for either promotion or tenure or just our annual evaluation yeah. one of the things they look at is how we do in our our student evaluations my department takes them very seriously you know so it's important for us to have good student evaluations. So I think that's a more formal way. Certainly the students are able to give some feedback um, and that feedback is available to other students. You know, if a student wants to take my class next semester, they can log into our computer system and read my evaluations from previous semesters and see what other students thought of me. So, you know, that gives another tool to the students to be like, Hey, do I want to take a, a, a class with this professor? Is this going to be a good fit for me? You know whether students do that or not, I don't know, but I I would guess they probably some of them
1: do. Doesn't make sense. I think I think that's very great that you say that because even my impression, okay. even to my impression, sometimes when you fill out a survey, you think they might be not be listened, but it's it's reinforcing. It's it's good to hear that. Um, and for those students who might one day hear this podcast as well, right. So, in terms of is it just just a top level question is there a system where in for in the US the university faculty in uh, like is there um ranking systems in the US to say okay in if you want to go to a journalism school this is the best journalism school to you go to is there a ranking system or is a general post-com?
0: yeah i mean there is ranking systems in several different ways i mean one thing is accreditation and so that says you're accredited by this independent body and then U.S. News and World Report does a ranking every year where they rank the schools based on various criteria, you know, everything from cost to, you know, graduation rate. So students can certainly look those, you know, if they Google top 10 years in schools, we usually come up on that list and they can see the criteria that that news organization used to rank them. And there's other rankings out there by other you know, private organizations that, and there's not like an official government ranking or anything like that, but there's rankings by either news organizations or like private companies that will rank them based on, you know, different factors. Um, to use any any total, from cost, a, graduation yeah. rates. Just basically there is, the various rankings sort of all do it a little bit differently, but the ones from um, U.S. News & World Report are sort of the ones a lot of people will refer to.
1: What are the ones that students commonly refer to? And what are the ones, the system, the ranking system that is internally um, used as part of your um, ongoing review of the course?
0: Well, I mean, I'm not sure what you mean, because, I, you know, students, if they're looking, say, to find out, you know, how good is this university ranked? They will probably most likely go to U.S. News and World Report, which releases a big report every year that ranks universities in all different ways. You know, categories, major state universities, private universities, small liberal arts schools. And internally, we certainly are happy when we're ranked high on those. Um, But at least to my knowledge, there's not some kind of internal ranking of the colleges.
1: Oh, yeah. So, there's, there's no, none of you don't use any of the external reports as part of internal performance reviews.
0: Well, there's internal performance reviews of individual employees. So, you know, faculty members get a review every year, but we wouldn't necessarily be critiqued on where our school ranks. We would be critiqued on our course evaluations and our publication, how frequently we publish.
1: That makes sense. I understand. Okay. Um, Gina, looking, looking ahead, what are some of the initiatives that you have in place, DC and beyond, for yourself personally and and for the for the faculty, and for engaging users as well?
0: Well, right. Well, I mean, I guess my my personal goals are are very aligned with, I guess, you know, these professional goals. Of I, I like doing what I'm doing. I want our journalism school to continue to be one of the best in the country, and I have high hopes that it will be because. I think we have an innovative faculty that we're constantly talking about, you know, what can we do better? And I think from a research standpoint, my research with the Center for Media Engagement, we are very excited about taking on more and broader projects that not only look at those discrete issues with particular news organizations, but look at bigger issues across the industry, that can be more generalizable to other news organizations and more helpful to other news organizations. So, I mean, I guess my goals are to continue doing what we're doing and continuing to have, you know, a high level of excellence both in teaching at the university, which I think we have, um, and also in research through the center.
1: Absolutely. I, I wish um, your continued efforts, I realized and everyone else appreciates it more and more. So, just, I know this might be in general, but um, just to provide some career, general career advice for students, aspiring journalists, or people who are interested in digital media, what, what's the advice that you give them, what you would give them for choosing that discourse and, and pursuing that passion for as long as you have?
0: Yeah, well, I guess my best advice would be is not to be afraid. You know, that don't be afraid if you don't understand everything at the beginning. Because most of these skills are very teachable. We can teach you how to write. We can teach you how to edit. We can teach you how to tell a story. So if this makes you passionate, stick with it. Don't be daunted if you get a bad grade. A bad One bad grade doesn't mean you aren't destined to do this. And the other, I guess, good advice would be is to have fun with what you're doing. I mean, I think one of the parts that I loved about being a journalist was it was fun. I mean, and that's what I love about being a journalism professor. So if it, if you aren't enjoying it, you may want to think about doing something else because you want to have a job that you enjoy doing, but don't be daunted by any, you know, one mistake or one bad grade because you want to look at the big picture. And I guess that's what I'd tell, you know, any student, really, whether they're going into journalism or not. Fun
1: might mean a bit different to everyone else. Do you mean fun in terms of storytelling aspect or finding that scoop or finding that, you know, angle that other people, perspective that someone might not have uncovered or?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess I started, I became a journalist initially because I liked to write and I was looking for a way to write and make a living. But when I got into journalism, I just loved I loved interviewing people. I loved talking to people and hearing their stories. I loved that they trusted me with their stories, and I loved trying to capture in my writing what they had told me. So I love that part of it, and I also love sort of the part where you 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 can make small changes. You know, I love doing stories that actually improved people's lives. That you know, I did a story once about the way the the funding of childcare was being done in the the county where I lived was flawed. And it was really hurting low income child care centers. And I wrote a package of stories about it, and they changed the formula. And that was a very gratifying day for me, because I felt like, wow, it's very few jobs where you get to be that watchdog for government and actually affect change. And I I found that really fun. And I think the same things are sort of fun the journalism professor is that i get to write which is what got me in this in the beginning um and i get to tell stories which i loved and i get to affect students lives so i think they the things i liked about both fields are sort of the same they're just a little bit different the different way they're audience, implemented essentially.
1: yeah, yeah. yeah the different audience and like you said the gratifying feeling of being able to teach students yes exactly awesome thank you thank you for your time great Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.